You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie and Martin Gibson as we do this time each week to discuss the media matters that have caught our eye. Good morning, Marty. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Marie. How are you? I'm much better than I was last week, so that's very good. Recording from a new location this week, so if everything sounds a little bit echoey to everybody, that'll be why well, I am in a different Move room. to the underground bunker, eh? During the break, we had a quick chat about where we're going with all of this. Productivity, though, you did a bit of a dive into productivity, and there was some really interesting stuff that came out yeah. on, in the Herald, which, of course, I didn't get because of all the weather here, and the uh, the Pony Express with the Herald did not get through because all the roads were closed. Yeah, the poor old, poor old uh, Hawke's Bay and East Coast getting hammered again. And all the stuff is tucked away in, in the business section. You know, no one's got the nous to actually make a story of it. It is a big story. If you look at what's in the main body of the paper, it's it's mostly Marxist. And then towards the end, you get some sensible uh, comment. Well, there were three articles I looked at with the productivity. The first one was one by the uh, New Zealand Productivity Commission chairman, uh, Ganesh Nana. And he basically offered some explanations about why New Zealand lags the world in productivity. Seems to be, he thinks mostly, it goes back to the Helen Clark fund R&D. Government needs to pick winners. That was mostly what he sort of talked about. He said, it's no secret we've got a productivity problem. Uh, Well, get on and solve it, Productivity Commission Chairman. Um, We're really too small and too isolated from major markets. We don't have the necessary necessary scale to crack on on the productivity front. You need certain critical mass to do that. He said the agricultural sector was world-class, but it was running out of ability to boost productivity further. Well, it could be that, uh, Ganesh, or it could be that we've got a bunch of crazy politicians who want to include agriculture in our emissions against our responsibilities in the Paris Climate Accord because there's such a big proportion of our emissions. You know, you'd think that you'd mention that, being as it could be $70 billion this decade, but you're the chairman. An opinion on the opposite page by Gordon Stewart, who's the director of uh, Chaperon, provides services to businesses in their dealings with banks. And that was quite interesting. He was basically saying, like all of these inquiries are, that it cherry-picked the obvious stuff, the retail banking, but left out how banks basically double dip by demanding all sorts of security on business loans. So it's harder for businesses to get finance, but they take big profits from it because of the risk. You know, all that stuff is left out. And of course, even further uh, outside Overton's window, you've got who's printing the money and who do owe it to and who, in whose interest is it that we've got $200 billion worth of debt and precious little to show for it, but division and destruction. So was there any discussion in either of those pieces around staffing issues and wage growth? No, there's nothing about staff. There's nothing about the lunacy of raising the minimum wage to the point where you've got to pay your worst workers what they're not worth and you can't pay your best workers what they're worth. And you know all of these, this drive for the raising of the minimum wage is um, pushed by people who have never employed anyone. They've never had to manage someone so that they are able to turn a profit on what that person does. I've actually been shortchanging a bit with theories lately. So I'll give you my theory on workers from uh, having employed hundreds of people over the years. 
I uh, developed a system. This is when I was a cleaning contractor. Workers you can categorize in, in one to five. Number ones are the ones who are the dream workers that everyone wants to hire. They just move the hands fast. They're organized. They're conscientious. And they've got sort of some uh, barely contained aggression that they pour into their work. And you want all your workers to, to be like that. Number twos are the ones who uh, want look at what you're doing and think, man, look at the money that guy's making. I wouldn't mind learning to do that. They uh, want your job, basically, which is fine unless you're in a small town. And so you put them with a number one and you've got a great team. Number threes are people who could go either way according to who they're with, how they're managed, etc. And they can uh, mature to be number ones or number twos, or they can go down to be number fours who basically look at you and, and think, look at all the money that prick's making. You know, why should I bust a gut just to make them more money? So they're the unionists and the, the Labour Party people. Their job is basically to corrupt the number threes, isolate the number, number ones and twos, and protect themselves and the number fives who you only hire accidentally because they break things and steal things. And you, the cost of managing them is always more than you actually make off them. So there's uh, my uh, theory for the day. The number fours are what I call the pasture gazers. The yeah, well, you know, always you greener you somewhere told, else. Whenever I've told my theory about that to someone who employs people, Every single time they'll get a, a look of dawning understanding and recognize them. The minimum wage means you're paying fours and fives far more than they're worth, taking away their incentive to improve. You've got these really productive people underpaid and becoming disillusioned, theory versus practice stuff. Again, the prize for the person who's on the spot, I mean, you should get this guy and have a chat to him or someone in Reality Check Radio should, Bruce Cotterell. He's a company director and advisor to business leaders. He's the author of the book, The Best Leaders Don't Shout. Bruce, love your work. And he, finally, I get to read someone in the paper identifying the problem as the largesse that the public sector lards on itself. He's talking about all of this hand-wringing about, oh, maybe we should get some more money out of these rich people. You know, let's kill that goose that's laying the golden egg. But no one's ever getting around to actually talking about the danger that we face having a uh, public sector that's inching ever closer to 50% of New Zealand's GDP. Talking about the Greens' big tax announcement, their revenue spokespersons grabbed a headline, Wealth in Aotearoa is concentrated in the back pockets of a wealthy few, as Chloe Swarbrick. It's time we get in and fix this. Actually, that might have been James Shaw. They all sort of sound the same, though, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It, I can hear the gulags in, in every single one. And he says, fix what? Success? Aspiration? Financial security? Oh, dear. It really is about envy after all. I have an alternative s sentence with which a politician can grab some headlines. The amount of money wasted by this government and their coalition partners is disgraceful. It's time we get in and fix this. We don't need to raise more money from taxpayers. We have plenty of money. And he goes through just the crazy spending that the government does that you'd never do in a business. Just as an example, in the last few days, $160 million on COVID tests that need to be dumped. And Minister Viral is saying, you need to do something about this to, to fatter order. And the reality of it is, they mismanaged and misspent that money. $160 million 
that's a lot of reading recovery that would change lives, isn't it? You've always got to see government spending as, as opportunity cost. And, you know, you always get that, oh, what do you want, less teachers and police? It's like, no, I want you to stop replacing your vehicles every three years. You don't need a limousine fleet. You don't need to live like Russian oligarchs, or even as you're fomenting Marxist class war here. Yeah, you're saying we've put on an additional 15,000 public servants in the past five years. That's $1.2 billion in salaries alone every year. Why? What are they doing? Do we need them all? Teachers and nurses, yes, but what about the others? So to those political parties who want to raise more tax revenue from us all, I ask one question. Why? Before you go back to the well, you need to be sure you are using your water as efficiently as possible, and you're not. Um, That's really worth reading that whole article. We just need to look at, I know Peter Williams has covered it, Uh, we've mentioned it before, I mean, 50% of journalists now in this country work for the public sector, spinning all this shit. Well, I saw a great uh, little infographic by Dave Farrar of Kiwi Blog where he was talking about how far left and hard left New Zealand journalists lean. It's a five to one inversion of the New Zealand public, that they're not representative of the New Zealand public's political views. And, and, you know, I'm always at pains to say, hey, look, you know, I, I see left wing as essentially wanting more government and less freedom. And I'm right wing in that I want less government and more freedom. You know, you don't have to put all the emotional, oh, you're Hitler if you do this, or you're Stalin if you do that. They're both more government and less freedom people. They're both left-wing. In the post this week, got a letter from the Honourable Christopher Hopkins. You did. Mr Marie did. And I thought to myself, why is Mr Marie getting this? Because believe me, if you knew my husband's political leadings, there would be no way that Mr Marie would be getting a letter from the Honourable Christopher Hopkins. You have to summon him to a re-education camp, maybe. Yeah, well, potentially. So I said to him, oh, can I open this? Because you've got a letter from the Prime Minister, darling. And he said, fill your boots. And it was addressed specifically to him. So it wasn't just to the householder. It was specifically addressed to Mr Marie, our address. Kia ora, Mr Marie. When I became Prime Minister, I said my government would focus on bread and butter issues New Zealand households face and keep an eye on the future. And it goes on to talk about the things that are in the budget. So we've got five bullet points here of what they covered in the budget. But this is what I love. These measures support households now while also delivering longer term education, health and climate benefits. They're win-win. Cyclone Gabrielle and the floods were devastating for many people. The government is committed to building back better and with greater resilience. Build back better, eh? Mm, those, build, you make those bees little bees, they almost look like 666, don't they? Mm, build back better. I was just going to say they really dived into the uh, the spin box for that one. Um, well, let's segue from that productivity and Bruce Cottrell actually sort of keeping with a the theme, the big area that I pulled into, and it also talks about the Marxism as well. Uh, as you said, you look at a lot of it as Sunday Star Times, so that's what I was able to get my hands on. And the very front cover of the Sunday Star Times was an image of a retirement age man or woman. The headline is Special Investigation, Work Till You Drop. The imagery is Soviet-era propaganda. (laughs) Totally Soviet-era propaganda. As I said, work to your drop, nearly a quarter of Kiwis 
push the employment past 65, one of the highest rates in the world. Four out of five of us don't have money to retire when we want. So how do we tackle the age-old problems of workplace ageism, housing pressures, and our lack of savings? So it is a very, very deep dive over a number of articles, but I just want to pull out a couple of pieces. The first one is the myth of New Zealand still working. Nearly four out of five Kiwis say money woes are stopping them from retiring when they want, and one in five boomers are delaying the day they'll down tools because of their nest egg just isn't large enough. This is Tracy Watkins, editor and Craig Hoyle. This is the one thing that I love, though. Don't you love it when journalists find that person to talk to? This is the real struggle that we have out there, and this is the struggle. They spoke to this woman, Alexis Mundy, is among those stuck in the rent trap, aged 64 and suffering chronic health conditions. The Wellington woman is studying for a journalism qualification, hoping that it will enable her to pick up some freelance work in the future. Mundy works part-time in retail and grateful that her employer is accommodating to her health issues. Mundy says retiring is not an option financially, even though her husband, aged 53, Alexis, you saucy minx, uh, is a full-time bus driver. They pay 525 a week for a two-bed flat, which she says is reasonable for Wellington. And I have to say for Wellington, that is pretty reasonable. But she's worried that she wouldn't be able to manage financially if it was increased, despite her husband working a 60-hour week. So that's when I did a post-it note calculation because I suddenly thought hold on a minute here $525 a week that's pretty reasonable rent she's still working part-time she's worried about their future moving forward there was I'm going to use it a quite a brouhaha about bus drivers the shortage thereof and how much they were being paid so I looked up what bus drivers in Wellington are being paid and currently they're being paid $30 an hour and uh, $30 an hour if you're operating that just at a 40 hour week you're looking at 62400 before tax for your yeah, earnings right. but according to her he's being paid 60 hours a week so by the time you throw the penal on that you're you know they're looking at 93600 before tax now to be fair before tax with a $27,000 rent bill actually Alexis I'm kind of thinking there are others out there a wee bit worse off Dylan so it's like when COVID was on and all the reports were about hairdressers and cafes because that's where the 20-something girls who are writing the reports go look I don't know about you Alexis is what 64 we're a little over 10 years younger than that the whole plan for your retirement message has certainly been drummed in since I have been of working age, no doubt. Now, I'm not a KiwiSaver girl. I don't like the KiwiSaver. I think a lot of funds are not well managed. And if you're in KiwiSaver, you need to do your homework. Mm. I personally have chosen to do other investment options, but I have been saving and investing oh, since I started working full time. I like to call it the generic imperative. I'm not tight, I'm careful. Uh. I just get really frustrated that there are a number of people out there that have had time to make plans and have not are not prepared didn't to sacrifice. It didn't get the memo or they're not prepared to sacrifice a certain level, the life to which they have become accustomed. Because let's face it, we have been living high on the hog for a really, really long time. They continue on and dive into it to look at different solutions and the Retirement Commissioner come in there. One of the problems they do cite, of course, is that there are other forms of welfare, and let's call it for what it is, welfare, that 
retirees can't access because the means testing in that is too high. So, of course, their solution is, is let's drop that means testing and allow those people to get more access to their welfare. Now, I learned a really interesting thing watching a piece actually with Stephen Shaw, and he's the chap who did the documentary Birth Gap. And we did an interview with him on Paul Brennan several weeks back. Do check that one out on the replays. Mm. He lives in Japan. So Japan has a bit of a crisis um, in terms of childlessness. And one of the things he said in Japan is more adult diapers are sold every year yeah. than baby diapers. Yeah, that's the tipping point, isn't it? And it? It is a tipping point. Where does that sit in terms of welfare? And when you think about it, he said that your assumption is is that us as taxpayers, the money that we're paying in tax, is going like into a fund to fund our pension and our retirement. But that's not the case at all. Whoever is currently in that pension level, superannuation level now, are being directly funded by who are currently working in the Isn't working environment. Well, we've got currently now, we're in the height of the silver tsunami, and these are all those baby boomers. I think the average age now the baby boomers are sitting around 74 they're living longer uh, their previous generation we are the ones paying for them i like to think i've probably got a good 20 years of financial productivity left in me but this is the concern that i've got what happens marty when you and i in 20 odd years time no free range retirement homes for us. no free range retirement homes for the Marty and the busky but and i looked at the birth rates the new zealand birth rate in 1960 the birth rate was 4.24. So that's right at the edge of the baby boom. So the baby boom finished in 64. So you're looking at around four, four and a quarter kids on average per family. Fast forward to when we cropped up in the early 70s, it was around 2.3. It had plummeted quite a bit. Sure, he said it, it all plummeted around the world everywhere at the same time. What a coincidence. It was, yeah. And he hasn't really been able to find a definitive answer to that because he said one of the reasons given in Japan is that they wanted to have more social work-life balance in Japan because they were working so hard. He said, and yet that birth rate also dropped in Italy. And he said, and you couldn't say that of the Italians because they already mm. had that. And it dropped here. He talked about um, different triggers. One of the triggers he talked about was the oil crisis, which of course happened when we were little tackers. That's a huge drop. And that's when that first big drop happened. The latest numbers that we have in this country is to 2020, it is currently 1.61. Mm. So when you think that if you and I, if the retirement age stays where it's at, we base it on the kids that are born in 2020 at 1.61, or even today, 20 years from now, who are going to be our little taxpayers of the future, they're not going to be there. The tax farm is starting to look a bit sparse of cattle. And I've pointed out before, you know, I've done Google searches of Ashley Bloomfield giving a crap about the plummeting birth rate and whether there's any biological reason for it, you can't find anything. And, you know, in the paper, there's, you know, we always look to keep an eye out for these stories about people having troubles conceiving. This week, there were two articles about how onerous it is cost-wise having children. There was another one about how people with children tend to be more depressed after they get children. And there was another one which uh, was saying that the um, end-of-life uh, legislation was too restrictive in limiting people who are going to die within six months. So, you know, 
you don't have to look far to find sort of an anti-human agenda. And and it's naive to think that the two aren't related. I remember when my, my parents used to say when they had me, I'm the eldest child at, at university in uh, the early 70s, there was still this, oh, you know, the world's overpopulated, you know, should is it, is it responsible having children? I remember sometimes people say that to me and I always say, are you planning on having kids that make things worse or make things better? And they tend to say, well, better. And I say, well, you better have more because we're going to need them. Which then begs the question, if you look at the flow-on effect of what that birth rate may be, for example, and education is one of our topics that we keep a close eye on, We've got an education sector not only in crisis because of poor performance and outcome, but also in crisis in regards to bums on seats in the tertiary sector, as well as there is a teacher shortage we know currently. If there are going to be less children coming through the pipeline, is this a case that governments are fully aware of all of this? They're fully aware of what is going to be happening, and they are literally kicking for touch. They are waiting. Well, that's the black pill, isn't it? The comforting thing to think is, oh, they're just stupid and they're doing a terrible job. The starker, dawning understanding is they know exactly what they're doing. They're doing a great job. It's just you don't know what the job is or who they're working for. Exactly. I'd love to see Bruce Cottrell actually throw his hat in the ring with education because talk about wasteful spending. My lordy lordy. Look well, at the gaslighting as well. Oh, we've got a world-class education system. You've got a graph that looks like an X where NCEA achievements going up and objective measurement of the ability of New Zealand kids to read, write and do maths is just going down. While our education system's getting worse and worse, we've got these teachers' unions and policy wonks patting themselves on the back. I mean, the first step of addressing a problem is admitting you've got one. We're not there yet. Oh, speaking of not got one, Te Pukinga, which of course is now the where all the politics have all been, a centralisation. I mean, there's a concept yeah. that hasn't been done before, communism. Centralisation of uh, all our politics. Te Pukinga, they did forecast initially a, yes, $63 million deficit. They have now bumped that up to $86 million. $86 million. But speaking of the gaslighting, Jan Tanetti, hmm, one of your faves. Tanetti says she made expectations around Tipukinga's performance clear and would be monitoring performance closely. She said the Tertiary Education Commission also is intensely monitoring arrangements to place a monitor in Tipukinga. There's lots of monitoring going on in Tipukinga. The key reason we created Tipukinga was to stop the reoccurring deficits we saw in the politics sector in 2017, 2018, 2019. These deficits would have continued and increased if we did not act. Yeah, I mean, the closer you get to government money, the, the stinkier everything gets and the less focused on the actual outcome that you're supposed to be striving for, the less emphasis there is on that. Mm. And that certainly was true in the polytech. On good news, though, one of the things that has appeared to have happened is a number of schools, and this is in the post, so they covered the universities, then they covered open plan classrooms, and a number of schools are starting to turn off the idea. The, the idea that some ministry wonk arrived at after seeing a TED talk and that's yeah. never been studied for efficacy. That's the one. So that the one. buzz 
The buzz of open plan classrooms is a turn off. Many school leaders are turning their backs on open plan classrooms and the trend continues to divide the sector. Bridie Whitten takes a look at the modern learning environments and their legacy on a generation of children. Lorraine Taylor, principal of Silverstream School, used sliding glass doors to convert open plan classes for up to 60 to all 90 students to move them into traditional classrooms when COVID hit alongside more back to basics approach returning to desks, books and structures. As a result, teachers are no longer going home with headaches. They can spend more time getting to know their students who aren't distracted by what's going on around them. This kind of hot desking and sitting on bead bags and whatnot is really distressing for the kids. Primary children don't have the developmental skills to be able to concentrate, she said. We've gone back to a lot more structure, a lot more work in books, quiet and calm classrooms, and it works. Oh my gosh, from the no shit Sherlock file. I've got friends who are teachers and they just tell me it's it's just absolute chaos and it's real easy for kids to get lost. Most of their effort goes to stopping the um, the few kids who just are running around and just disrupting everyone. And then you've got the Marxist policies of the school that come out of places like Massey, which say, oh, you know, maths is a major driver of inequity. So, you know, if we put the bright kids in with the kids who aren't doing so well, then equity. As I've also said before, once parents find this out, they're horrified, but most parents are pretty oblivious to how bad it, it is. I just spoke to Kelly Valudos and she is an educator. She's uh, got the ARC education and I brought up open plan uh, learning environments, modern learning environments. She said she didn't have a problem with them, but she said she also worked very actively in that environment to make that environment work. And I think just having known her from what she's spoken about and the work that she's done, she's one of those teachers that's the exception, not the rule. So mm. there will be those that will be able to work and thrive with it. Birdie does go on to a really good article, and it's huge. I'm not going to dive in too deeply with this, but it is very good. If you happen to get the post over the weekend, uh, do have a look at it. Well, you know, there's another article, and uh, oh, this is from Friday's uh, New Zealand Herald, Learning Gaps Worse, says ERO, Educational Review Office. Also found principals reporting large numbers of students falling behind, some behind by well over a year. Don't worry, though. The Ministry of Education's Sean Teddy said they supported the findings and already had a range of initiatives to address attendance, behaviour and learning issues. Just to show they're taking it all seriously, there's another um, article in the same paper, Schools Urged to Respect Transgender Students. They seem to be putting a lot more time into that. They're basically urging them to follow guidelines from our old mates inside out, who, of course have as their patron saint, John Money, the pedophile from Victoria University. The ministry noted that inside-out guidelines for schools were not mandatory, and this leaves confusion for schools on what Ministry of Education expects schools should do in day-to-day -day practice, particularly regarding support for transgender and non-binary students. You just get the feeling they're not asking the right questions. And, you know, there was another article in Sunday Star Times, which was, again, just, I got the feeling it was out of the same nudge unit that said, oh, you know, heart lung and immune system issues are skyrocketing after COVID. Talking about private schools, see role, saw after going co-ed. It just never gets around to mentioning that the reason New Zealand parents are basically investing 
a really decent fishing boat each year to send their kids to private schools is because the um, public education system is increasingly not fit for purpose. Just never quite get around to finding that person who'd say that. What they haven't touched in this in this article is they've gone and uh, hit out these private schools, which are the traditional private schools. So we're talking about Heroworth, we're talking about Rangiruru, Christ College, uh, King's College, uh, St. Peter's in Cambridge. The one set of schools that she completely missed in this article are the fully independent Christian schools which are out there. The Hastings Christian School here in Hawke's Bay has a waiting list a mile long, and they're not all from Christian parents wanting to send their children yeah. there. They're, I've got uh, friends from- who, who have converted to Catholicism for that reason. And, you know, the strap line of this article says, what's behind the increasing popularity of private education? Tatiana Gibbs investigates. No, she didn't really. She didn't investigate at all. I mean, it's great that those schools are doing well, but it was almost kind of, it was dripping. I could feel the envy dripping off the page. And, and, you know, I mean, in that earlier article I quoted about the ERO report, the kids who are suffering most are are the kids from lower socioeconomic families. You know, it's the paradox of socialism. It hurts the poor because they don't have options to get away. As Orwell said, it's not that socialists love the poor, they just hate the rich. On that vein of hating the rich... In opinion, our friend Andrea Vance, I'm going to start there because you've actually got the best opinion stuff and of course I didn't, couldn't get my hands on it, but I did get my hands on Andrea. She was talking about our local body. There's been lots of hoo-ha in politics this week. You know, we know that uh, Michael Wood finally got his come up at Ming Food and decided to, he resigned, but then he didn't resign. Then he tried to unresign and then now I think he's just resigned that he's resigned. <laughs> Christopher Luxon, she talked about the conflict there with his wife, of course, buying an EV, even though he's saying that the clean car discount is something that is just hoo-ha-ha. I just love some of these quotes from her, though. As we hurtle inexorably towards the October election, the campaign is ever more like a reality TV show, where contestants get voted in or out, but with little to do and no connection to the people in the real world. Correct, Andrea. An expert panel came to the conclusion that after more than two years, roadshows, webinars and two reports, the series of compounding crises and councils are experiencing is unlikely to abate. All of these challenges are felt at a pace and will only intensify in the next 30 years. So she's talking about local government. At an almost constant state of perma-rage, where households endure eye-watering rates increases while councils Baff money on frivolous vanity projects cannot continue. We have reached peak rates, the panel warned. The anger did not translate to engagement. Turnout at elections is at an all-time low, aggravating the disconnect between citizens, institutions, and those supposed to represent them. She's pulled this out of this report for local government, but Mm. you just replace council with government, and you could be talking about what's going on in The the solution's never, hey, let's shrink this. I mean, it's quite jarring going to Gisborne and going from the main street with people shuffling around, looking depressed and resentful, boarded up shop windows from ram raids during the floods, etc. The biggest, flashest shops being vape shops. And it's looking... Grubby. Yeah, I feel bad about Gisborne. But you go over the bridge and there's this grand new council building. Yeah, you just kind of think, man, this is let them eat cake, isn't it? 
And it's so sad because, you know, with that being our hometown, and I know when I was there, that's what I couldn't get over. Like I, walking down that main street that was done up for the millennium, which is when I was working in media, just during that time, there was the optimism, the mm. optimism in Gisborne in that period, that summer especially, was just wonderful. It was so energetic. Everyone was coming together. It was such an incredible place to be. And as you said, you walk down that main street there and it is vape shops, $2 cheap tech shops and emporiums, mm. government departments. Yeah, a lot of iwi organisations and, uh, and, and, yeah, the jarring difference between Tipuni Kokiri's building and the buildings on either side of it. Well, even the cop shops moved into what was formerly a department store. Or something, wasn't it? it is quite sad. It is those politics of envy. So she continues on around um, local government. It's ambitious and a thoughtful report, which local government minister Kieran McAnulty immediately threw on Labour's policy bonfire. Reforming local government is important, but bread and butter, oh, that's obviously the term they love, bread and butter issues and recovering from recent disasters take precedence in the short term. Councillors are deliberately being kept away from running their councils day to day, while unelected officials are focused on protecting the interests of their employer, their council, not the community. Mm. Who could that also be thrown and accused at? Anywho, what did they say over in the Herald? The Herald on Sunday, yeah, good. I'll just skip over them quickly because we've still got a bit to get through. Actually, Paula Bennett came out with a a, a timely article uh, about the open season on older white men, basically saying how hard is it to be a white guy in New Zealand at the moment. No, I, I... Never want it to sound like I'm whining about that, but I think it's interesting in terms of just the double standards, I guess, like the race thing. You weigh down the priority list for health, as we have heard this week. He can't stick up for himself or others. He'll be seen as patronising and using his privilege to put others down. But I worry about them. I worry about the message it is sending our younger white guys who hear and see it on a daily basis and wonder what their future looks like. So many men are now hesitant. You know, that's certainly true in the... uh, groups who got together to stand up against the government, you know, that constant refrain of where are the men? Well, you know, men and women have been each subject to their own customised menticide, haven't they? You know, men have been sort of conditioned with a mixture of porn and nihilism to just think about themselves and also from feeling that the family courts stacked against them, just going uh, MGTOW, men going their own way. Now they're being asked, oh, help us, help us. It's like, well, where were you when I was getting screwed over? So that, that was good. Uh, Shane DePoe came up with, you know, a fairly insightful column on um, on nationals being squeezed by ACT and summarised a lot of flip-flopping on the uh, bilingual road signs, uh, centrist housing accord, then flipping prescriptions, cross-party deal to reduce agricultural greenhouse emissions and so on it went. So pretty good. And then it's headed for the weeds. Meanwhile, Luxon's personal popularity continues to spiral. Unfortunately, National has reacted to this pressure by deciding they need a scapegoat. And sure enough, it's Maori they've decided to target. All National sees is another chance to tell Pākehā that Maori are getting special treatment under Labour in an effort to garner some votes. Shane, they are. People like you are okay, bro. I'm not even going to talk about Chanel Lyle, but 
yeah, that guy's got a lot of hate in him. He puts the demon in Pride Month. On Shane Poe's um, take on National, you know, I mean, I, I feel bad kind of putting the slipper into them. But there's a, an article in the Sunday Star Times which quotes Nicola Willis as saying, what our country needs right now is hope. That's what National will deliver. So it's the election between hopium and the left's philium. Heads we lose, tails they win. Yeah, Tracy Watkins covered that off uh, in the Sunday Star Times, that particular speech. You know, it's really interesting in her column from the Willis speech. In the months ahead, hundreds of thousands of mortgage holders will have to move off a home loan with 2 or 3% interest rate to a loan with 6 or 7%, she warned. Skim through the latest property listings, and it's starting to show houses that are listed for hundreds of thousands of dollars less than what they were bought only a few years ago. So that's that whole conundrum between uh, your leveraging and your equity in terms of what you've done. And I get really fed up fiscally because I'm someone that, as I said before, I have been careful. I've been financially prudent all of my life. It's something that's been drummed into me since I was a kid. And I look at this and I think, I don't begrudge anyone wanting to get their homeowning dream. I think if you work really hard for that, that is something that you should be aspiring to. And I really congratulate anyone that has. And it is tough when you've signed up for a, a three or five year mortgage at two to two or three percent and that mortgage rate comes off and you get stung. It hurts. But yeah, I mean, it's you a know, big squeeze, isn't it? You know, it, you, yeah. it is a big squeeze. But, you know, I bought my first house in 1999. The house was one hundred and thirty four thousand dollars. And she was a, uh, what I would like to call a nice old Victorian doer-upperer. I had spent far too much time watching Changing Rooms. The flush of youth, I was in my mid-twenties and I thought, oh, I, I can do this. And I was really proud of myself. I shopped around in terms of getting a mortgage and I was super proud of myself because I got one of the lowest mortgage rates that were going at the time. I fixed it for two years and that rate was 6.8%. Mm. You know what? I was also working in media at the time. I was I had both on air, but I had moved into selling advertising, and that was a commission-based job. Tell you what, there's nothing better, nothing more motivating to get your ass off your office chair, out pushing the pavement, talking to clients, selling your wares, than a big fat mortgage than you have to pay. Oh, I mean, I've 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 been there being the uh, trying-not-to-look-hungry salesman on commission only. It's a miserable place to be. It is a miserable uh, place to be, but you know what? You certainly learn a lot of skills doing it. And whilst I do... download some software, doesn't it? It does. And whilst I really feel for people right now, if you're having to face that, you know what? Having been faced with a financial shock, you look at it and you go, okay, time to reassess. And you look at those levels of comfort and it's that old-fashioned needs and wants... And you'll be amazed at how many things that you think you need are actually things that you want. Mm. I remember someone that was uh, in charge of, I think, fisheries in Gisborne uh, lamenting, you know, when I was a kid and I was going uh, around the coast, every house had a, uh, in the bus, every house had a garden. Now I go there and every house has got a sky dish. 
Yeah. You know, Sky was something we got rid of. I literally went through the bank statement because so much of the stuff is electronic now. So you can, you can track it, you can map it. There's no excuse. I literally went through that bank statement and said, right, it's like, do we need that? No. Do we need that? No. Do we need that? Yes. But do we need to do it the way that we're doing it? How can we be more effective in what we're paying? And it's depressing. And it's a bit demoralizing and you go through and you do it. But you know what? Once you've gone through and you've done it, it's really amazing how quickly that you actually realize that, oh, actually, you get used to the new budget. You get used to the the way things are. And now that things are flipped over and have improved significantly, I said to my husband, you know what? We've actually, we've made some really good financial habitual changes. Let's not change them. If you can avoid what's the Let's old adage, spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Yeah. Alison Moore had a, an article. She was saying, um, I'm always puzzled about those inspirational stories about 20-something Kiwis and their property portfolios. You never have to scroll very far before finding details of the deposit-sized nest egg they were gifted from mum and dad or the grandies, which helped them onto the first rung of an out-of-control housing market. That's not inspirational. Well, Alison, in its own way, it is, you know, having a family. My grandfather spent two years living in a tent in the Waiwaka Gorge when he was a kid. Then my old man grew up on a small farm and went to Waikahu College. My mother, you know, grew up in a state house in Kaikohe. I know that they helped me out too much with um, my mortgage, but they certainly helped me out with one or two other things. Building intergenerational financial stability is inspirational. You know, we were talking before about the inversion of the uh, ageing pyramid. I tend to think that there might be a family compound or a certain type of village in my future. I don't necessarily, um, I mean, you know, you want your kids to, to make their own way in life, but uh, I certainly wouldn't mind living close to them. Right, well, we need to wrap this up because we've been going at it for a while. What else did you have on your list? Well, you know, there was, there was you know, sort of talking about nationals, poor messaging with Māori. As I've said before, Māori are very sensitive to whether you like them or not. You can normally thaw even the frostiest Māori out if they think, oh, this guy likes me and is pleased to be talking, which I am, because I, I do love the old cousies. Uh, and I, there are plenty of Māori that I actually love. You know, I've got whānau, I've got dear, dear friends. It doesn't come across from the National Party. They need to be saying, hey, you know, like we need to be more than the sum of our parts. We've been divided so they can rule us more easily. We need to get on and help each other out and be our best selves, be more than the sum of our parts. You know, I think Tracy Watkins, in that editorial that you mentioned, said, driving a deeper wedge through an increasingly polarised society on an issue as divisive as race relations seems like the least likely path towards aspiration and innovation. But I assume she's the editor on 24, about eight pages earlier, there's an article, Signs of the Racist Times, Māori bilingual signage still used for race baiting, which presumably, as editor, she gave the thumbs up to. Because reading through it, I would never have gotten this past the sub-editor. They would have said, hey, look, you know, this is completely unbalanced. You're trying to pass it off as a story. It's an opinion piece, and it's, it's pretty slanted. They've got Cassie Hartendorp, of Action Station, you know, first up saying, God, she just moans. 
We've definitely seen an upturn in race baiting. Let's call it for what it is. This behavior deliberately stirs up racism and is actually causing division, putting us further and further behind in our race relations. That organization is a Green Party astroturfing to sort of try and pass it off as objective. And there's no balance. Talks about Don Brash was back popping up with a nomination for a new race relations commissioner. Not that anyone was asking, just sort of really nasty towards anyone who's got an opposing view. But then it finished. And I mean, you can hear this gradualism. It's saying, oh, you know, now this is talking about the Kapiti renaming all the roads in Kapiti and how there was this objection to it by these pale, stale people. Now the council is hoping to have a more positive conversation with residents, having let the dust settle a bit. So it's that gradually inch by inch kind of thing. She closes with a quote from Associate Professor Kylie Quince, Dean of AUT's Law School. Whether it's disguised as being about science, crime or health, the rhetoric currently being used by politicians is undeniably dog whistling to a small but reflective audience. New Zealanders are so lily-livered about their racism, she said. Rather than just saying, I don't want Maori on the signs, they say it's not safe or nobody will understand. Own your own dumb views. Don't pretend there's another reason for it. And right at the end, she said, what we're hearing are only the dying squeals of a demographic that won't be representative of Aotearoa in 20 years' time. I can't wait. And, you know, when you sort of know a bit about where that kind of Marxist view is coming from. It's a short hop between I can't wait for these people to die to I can't wait. I can't wait for these people to die. Let's make some gulags. I don't think that Pākehā are racist toward Māori or don't want to embrace Māori culture or don't see it as a vital part of our national identity. What I think their objection is to is our failure to deal with our legacy of slavery. And you've got, I've said this before, you've got these iwi leaders and they uh, want to embody that slave-owning attitude to the New Zealand taxpayer. You know, you can take the fruits of their labours without reciprocity. Uh, you can denigrate their papa on the basis of some past slight. Yeah, you can trash talk them. And that's what people don't like. They don't like being treated that way. No, indeed. No one does. Nah, that, no, that's one does. It. it's not it's not the Maori, it's the Toreka Reka attitude. Mm. The projection, you know, saying that people who object to race based laws are racist. It's kinda of, you gotta bend yourself in knots to kind of see that as a rational argument. But it's never about rational arguments. It's about getting the revolution you want at all costs. And if mm. it means lying then so be it. And we've got to stop expecting logic and truth from these people. We're kind of like people who, you know, a hitchhiking get picked up by a serial killer. We sort of know something's bad. We're going from the city, maybe through an urban environment. We're sort of thinking, well, I don't want to upset this person. They seem a bit unhinged. And then suddenly we're turning onto a rural road and uh, it's almost too late. Quote that guy who played Jesus in Mel Gibson's film is making a movie on child trafficking with them now. People have got to love their children more than they fear evil. It is tough to say, hey, the facts are all there. You're lying and I don't think this is going anywhere good. No one wants to do that. I don't really want to be doing that. It's never going to get easier. Before we do go, mm -hmm. I've been astonished at the silence of New Zealand's media on the Hunter Biden WhatsApp message. You know, and, and I got this off CNN. So most of New Zealand's news, international news comes 
on America anyway. Most of it is sort of through the CNN filter. And of course, CNN has like a tenth of the listenership of Fox, and Fox has a tenth of the listenership of Joe Rogan. So it's, you know, they draw from a pretty shallow puddle. But there's no argument now that Hunter Biden this was off Hunter Biden's laptop. He sent a message to pressure um, the CEO of a Chinese fund management company who was also a mean member of the Chinese Communist Party. And this was back in uh, 2017, possibly. I'm sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand and now means tonight. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I'm sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Now, soon after this, he got, I can't remember whether it was $2 million or something, and then he got into trouble with the tax department for not paying it. And then somehow whoever was a whistleblower on that got leaned on. It's not shocking news that the U.S., politics is corrupt. I mean, you know, everyone knows that. What shocks me is just the deafening silence by New Zealand's media about this. And the reason for that is that our politicians and our uh, our media are all in that deep state. There's a, an article about Chris Hipkins' visit to China, and he's going to speak to the summer Davos over there. We don't ever hear about that either. No. Well, I mean, in the US, it's a case of orange man, man, and corrupt man better, isn't it, really? There's no talk of how corrupt he is, and they're incredibly corrupt. And this isn't, you know, they've weaponized the FBI. Mm. So again, you know, the serial killer is kind of making chit-chat with us while there's a chill running down our spine. You better listen to your gut on this. I'm going to finish off with things with your gut, if you're going to feel your gut, out of Australia. Cow's seaweed diet backfires as they produce less meat. This was a tiny little bit hidden in the nether regions of the post. Feeding cow's seaweed was introduced in Australia as an ingenious way to reduce their carbon emissions. But there has been an unforeseen consequence, isn't there always? Research suggests it puts them off their food, meaning they produce less meat. Australia's biggest cattle owner has conducted a 300-day trial with 80 Waigu cattle fed a twice-daily ration of asparagopsis, a native red seaweed, which prevents the formation of methane by inhibiting a specific enzyme in the gut during digestion. Although the final results have not yet been published, the Australian agricultural company told the shareholders the seaweed did not appear to have affected the quality of the meat, but it certainly has affected the quantity. Well, the good news is that now they're brewing chicken meat from chicken cells. In a lab. That's the next step after, well, we tried to get the methane down from the cows, but that didn't work, so uh, your leads are bugs. There's always so much to talk about. Thank you again. You can catch Marty with the political panel with Paul Brennan on Friday morning. Marty Cam, Olivia Pearson, and, of course, Paul Brennan here on The Breakfast Show. But uh, next week we will catch up. There'll be more again, I'm sure, for us to chew over. Marty, thank you very much. I hope you have a great rest of week. Same to you, Marie. I hope you do also. And uh, have a great week, everyone. Thanks. Share widely. Share widely.
don't disappear. There is still more to come. The Woke Word of the Week is up next. And remember, if you've got any feedback for Marty and I, just give us a bell. 2057 is the text number or inbox at realitycheck.radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.